Our scripture this morning is from Psalms 19, 1 through 10. Let us pray. Father God, please bless the reading of this word of God to our understanding. In Christ's name, amen. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the law, Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decree of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. Can we just uh, thank Carrie and Bob and Robert uh, for their testimonies so far? And and also um, Darlene has one coming up. Jan Price has one coming up. Can we just thank them? That's that's a big deal. Well, I also want to say I don't feel like I would be a good Presbyterian if I didn't give you some book recommendations. Somebody will come to me with a question, and I, I, they leave my office with five books. Um, you know, as we're going through uh, some of these questions that, that have been coming up as we've been working through Genesis, um, just a few. Believing is Seeing by Michael Gillen is a great one. The Science of God, Gerald Schroeder is another good one. Science and Faith, you're going to hear me quote this guy a lot, uh, by Jack Collins or C. John Collins. Uh, and then this is another great one by John Lennox uh, called Can Science Explain Everything? So I'm going to leave these up here. And uh, if you guys want to come by and kind of flip through them or anything like that, don't take them. I'm still using them. I'll give you one later if you need me to. Uh, But there there are some resources that can guide you as we are working through this. Um, <clears throat> Ray Vanderlaan, if any of you guys know him, uh, he, he would tell the story of this, this rabbi who was walking down the road and he was very deep in, in prayer and, and it was getting late and he, he wasn't really paying attention where he was going and so he's going and he, he kind of misses his turn off and he's praying and then all of a sudden he hears this big booming voice and it says, who are you? Where did you come from? Where are you going? And he kind of looks up and he sees this Roman soldier standing there with his, his hand at the ready looking at this, this little rabbi. And he says, what did you say to me? I said, who are you? Where did you come from? Where are you going? And the rabbi responded and he said, how much do they pay you for this? And the guy said, well, they pay me three denarii a week. Why? 
And he looked at him and he said, I will pay you double to stand outside my door and ask me those same questions every morning. Those are three of the most important questions that you can ask yourself, ask, ask anyone in life. Who are you? Where did you come from? Where are you going? And today we're going to be looking at a text that, that starts to answer some of those questions. And so we're going to be looking at Genesis, uh, we're actually going to look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. Genesis chapter 2. Verses 4 through 9, if you would turn there with me in your Bibles. But before we read, let's pray again. Lord, we do ask that you would guide us. Holy Spirit, we do ask that you would teach us, make us more like Jesus, we pray. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is God's word. So the question, the question that often comes up when uh, any time really when we are reading this passage, the question that often comes up is, is kind of that question of, of where, where did you come from? Where did you come from? And, and, and related to that question, then, then begins to come some other questions of, okay, well, so it, let's just say that we came from Adam. Well, how did God make Adam? And really, if you start to talk with people, whether they are, are Christians or, or not, anytime you have Christianity and the origins of man all kind of mashed together, at some point, somehow, in some form, the question is going to come up, well, can Christians believe in something like evolution? That question is going to come up. It, it probably already has with you. You've probably asked yourself that question when your kids were going through school. That question may have been on your mind. Can Christians believe in evolution? And like always, when we have a question like that, we want to ask, what do you mean? What do you mean? What do you mean by believe? What do you mean by, by believe in? Can you believe in? If, if what you mean by that is I'm going to believe that, that the theory of evolution is true no matter what. That's being closed-minded, and that's not very scientific. It's not biblical. Paul praises the Bereans when they investigate what he taught them about Jesus. Uh, uh, the Proverbs say that it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings to search it out. So if we're not even, if, if you're, you're on one side or the other and you're not even going to consider any possibilities, that would be unscientific and that would be unbiblical. 
So what do you mean by believe? Well, what do you mean by evolution is the next question we need to ask. What do you mean by evolution? Because really this is talking about a a whole series of different theories. It's talking about a whole bunch of different ideas. And so we really need to ask that question, what do you mean by evolution? Now today, when you hear that word today, what people, at least in our culture, what people are almost exclusively talking about is something that we would call neo-Darwinism. Neo meaning new Darwinism, that that theory that was popularized by Charles Darwin. Neo-Darwinism, I'll just tell you right from the front, it, it sets itself in opposition to the teachings of Scripture. It sets itself in opposition to what we just read, because what we just read has God involved in what's happening. But look at what the uh, National Association of Biology Teachers, here's how they describe neo-Darwinism, and I think we have this one up here. The diversity of life on earth is the outcome of evolution, and here's what they say evolution is. It is an unpredictable and natural process of temporal descent with genetic modification that is affected by natural selection, chance, historical contingencies, and changing environments. And in case you're not sure what they mean by natural selection, they tell you this. It has no specific direction or goal, including the survival of the species. So they're even one-upping Darwin a little bit here by saying, no, 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 this has, this has no goal, and in, in, in that includes survival of the species. Most of the time when people today talk about evolution, this is what they're talking about, this neo-Darwinism. And the hallmark of neo-Darwinism is that it denies anything, anything that resembles the supernatural. Nature is the beginning and nature is the end of all life. Jack Collins says it this way. He says, most of the support for neo-Darwinism today comes with a claim about what valid science is. And here it is. Namely, that it must appeal only to natural causes and that it assumes an unbroken chain of natural causes from beginning to end. Okay, you see now, based on what we just read, you see why something like neo-Darwinism would be in conflict with Scripture. Neo-Darwinism essentially promotes an atheistic explanation for what we see around us today by saying there's an unbroken chain of natural consequences. Now, if you go back a few weeks and you remember we talked about, but how did everything get here? They still don't have an answer for that. They still don't have an answer for how things came into being. But once it's here, they say everything happened naturally, no God involved. Now, there are consequences to that. There are consequences to that idea. Consequences like this, design is an illusion. Anything biological that appears to have been designed, design is an illusion. Richard Dawkins puts it this way in The Blind Watchmaker. He says, biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance 
of having been designed for a purpose. What do you think about that? You want to invite him over for Christmas? He's, I bet he's a fun guy to have around on the holidays, right? Design is an illusion. And, and what my job is as a biologist, he's a biologist, my, my job as a biologist is, <clears throat> is to help you understand that your biology just looks like it was designed, but that is just an illusion. You have no purpose, and you were not designed. Now, that leads to another question. Would you really trust something that was desi- wasn't designed, just appeared to be designed? Would you really trust something that, that, that had no purpose? Would you really trust something if design was all an illusion? <clears throat> I love the way John Lennox explains some of his conversation, and, and I don't have a slide for all this, but he talks about uh, sometimes when he's talking with fellow scientists, and he'll ask them, he'll say, so you're a scientist like me, what do you do science with? And some of them will say, well, with my, my mind, or I do it with my brain. And he says, okay, that's great. <clears throat> How did that brain come to exist? And they say, well, by means of a, a natural, mindless, unguided process. It was this, this chain of natural events, right? And then he says, if you thought your computer was the result of a mindless, unguided process, would you trust it? Not in a million years, comes the reply, to which he says, you clearly have a problem then. He said, sometimes they'll ask him where he got this argument, and he will tell them, oh, I got it from Charles Darwin. You see, Charles Darwin wrote He said this, he said, but then with me, thinking about his theory, the horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of man's mind, which has been developed from the mind of the lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. Would anyone trust in the convictions of a monkey's mind if there are any convictions in such a mind? That that own problem came from Charles Darwin. Would you trust something that had no design it was there without an illusion. Another consequence of that idea that's promoted through neo-Darwinism is this. Can, can you have ethics? Can you have love? Can, can, can anything have any meaning? And the answer is no. They said it right there. Uh, it, it, you, you just look like you've been designed for a purpose. I love the way another guy put it, Connor Cunningham is quoting this Darwinist named Michael Ruse. Michael Ruse said this. He said, biological fitness is a function of reproductive advantages rather than a philosophical insight. Thus, if we benefit biologically by being deluded about the true nature of formal thought, then so be it. A tendency to objectify is the price of reproductive success. Okay, so basically what he's saying is, look, your biology will lie to you. Your biology, if it has a purpose, and he, he, he goes back into saying, no, 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 you do have a purpose of at least reproduction. And he says, look, if biology has a purpose, it will lie to you to accomplish that. So all your ethics, all your love, all your meaning, all of that stuff could just be a ruse to dupe you into accomplishing what your biology wants it to do. That's what my kids tell me sometimes, and I don't believe them. Daddy, I, I had to do it. No, you didn't. Now think about that. How many of you have kids? 
Okay, how many of you have grandkids? How many of you have siblings? How many of you have pets? How many of you have parents? Okay, I think we got everybody on that last one there. Your biology, according to this, your biology is deluding you. Your biology is lying to you every time you look at them and go, oh. Every time you think about them and you have fondness, every time you, you think about how much, how much they mean to you, your biology might just be lying to you in order to accomplish its end. Okay, you, you, you see some of the problems with this, with, with neo-Darwinism. There are already plenty of valid challenges. But really, even with all of those, really, we just need one. We only need one challenge to this claim. Jack Collins puts it this way. He says, suppose, for example, you could show, suppose you could, that the ancient fossil bird Archaeopteris really did descend from reptiles and that this really does show that the birds developed from reptiles. Go to the next slide, if you would. He says, to show that neo-Darwinism is true, though, so even if you could do that to show that it's true, you have to show that this development took place entirely without any divine interference. And he very uh, much understates it when he says that's a pretty tall order. So even if, even if all of this stuff that neo-Darwinism is, is making claims of, that there's this unbroken chain of natural events, guess what? Okay, well, can you prove that there was no divine interference? It is an unprovable position. It's an unprovable claim to say that all of these things happen without divine interference at all. So, neo-Darwinism, if you, if you want to go with what's in this book, um, I, I think you would probably have to say that neo-Darwinism is out. Okay? That is out. So then, there's a follow-up. <clears throat> well, can Christians believe in evolution that allows or requires God's involvement. Okay, look back again at the text. This is important. Look again at the text and see what it says. Verse 4, you see that the story is shifting. It's zooming in. These are the generations of the heavens and earth, and that's a structure that's going to come later on with the generations. Then verses 5 through 6, you get the setting. And as you read through that setting, you get the idea that the world was very different then than it is now. That would make sense if this happened over a long period of time. And then you get into verse 7, and it says this, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So, so first thing we need to remember is that God is intimately involved in all of this creation process. And then this word here that he uses, that God formed the man, it's the same one he uses for the animals later, that God formed the animals. And here is the thing. Man here is formed from something that Genesis calls dust. And some people have said, and, and good people who love Jesus, a very, very conservative Presbyterian that's got a seminary chapel named after him, J. Oliver Buswell, um, he even said, you can look at this word formed, and you could say, 
that there was something that happened that was a guided process that happened over a long period of time that possibly, possibly this idea of descent with modification happened all at the hand and the direction of God. Whether it is probable or not is a whole different question that we're not looking at today. But when you look at the text and you just look at what's there and you read it as a, as a good reader of the text saying what's here, what's not, it's possible. It is possible to say that there was this guided evolutionary process. Now let me just show you this and show you what I mean. <clears throat> there is the command that comes and this is the way God, this is the way God creates all of the things in Genesis. There's a command. So, for example, you can look at verse 20, chapter 1, verse 20. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, let birds fly above the expanse. Then there is the action, <clears throat> verse 21. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves. And then you have the result where God looks at it and he says, and God saw that it was good. Where in there did God describe the process for us? Anyone? Bueller? All right. Genesis doesn't describe the process for us, okay? Now, don't hear what I'm not saying, right? We're not talking about neo-Darwinism here, and I'm I'm not saying, we're not talking about probability and all that. We're just talking about possibility. What does the text allow? The text allows that there is a God, that he is the one and only creator, and that this God is intimately involved in every step of his creation, that all of it will go the way he wants it to go, and that it doesn't tell us the process by which God created, okay? Now, I see some looks. All I want to say is what this should do for us as Christians is maybe relieve a little bit of tension. Maybe allow us to understand why one person might understand that God created things one way, one person might understand that God created things another way. But we're both saying God created, God is involved. And I'm not telling you where I land on this, by the way. But God created, God is involved, God formed God formed mankind. He formed the animals. And the word here is like a potter forming something from clay. That there is intention. There is artistry. There is design. I love it. We heard this scripture last, uh, I think it was last week. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers. The work of your fingers, right? That's an artist at work fashioning, molding, by whatever process he's using. But God is intentional. He is at work. He is forming these things. Now, remember, Genesis doesn't tell us how God made humanity. But it does tell you one very important thing. One thing that we should gather from all of this. You are here on purpose. Okay? You are here on purpose. It's not an illusion. It's not a a trick to look designed. 
It, it's not a trick that you are here. It's not a trick that you love, that, that you, you, you have an understanding between right and wrong, that, that you have a longing for family and, and friends. It, it's, it's not a trick that you are here. You are not here on accident. That is the overwhelming thing that we should get from the creation story of Genesis, that God made you on purpose. He formed you. He fashioned you. He breathed life into you. Psalm 139, 13 says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. God made you on purpose. And then he placed you in a world that we see was fine-tuned for life. Look at that. Look at that in verse 8. It says, God planted a garden in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And then out of the ground, he comes up, and he has, has trees that are just pretty. Think about that. He made, he made the tree spring up that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. God put man in an environment that was made for him. That's what we should get from this. And then he gives that, that man, he gives mankind a purpose. Hey, go out. And we're going to talk more about that in the weeks to come. But you are here on purpose. It's not a mistake. And so when you wonder... Because we all do sometimes. Do I matter? Do I matter to anybody? Am I just an accident? Do I even have value? It can come up for all kinds of reasons. Maybe it's a bad day and, and not enough sleep. Maybe it's something more. Maybe it's illness. Maybe it's loss. Maybe you just feel invisible. And you start thinking, do I matter? Am I just an accident? Do I have value? Listen, if, if Richard Dawkins and the neo-Darwinists are right, no, you do not. Let's just be honest. You don't. If they're right, you don't matter. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to be the one to tell you that. But if God is right, if God is right, you are not a mistake. God made you on purpose and he saved you on purpose. Jesus, just look at the cross. Look at what he went through. Jesus did not save you by accident either. You are not an accident. You are not a mistake. Jesus didn't save you by accident. He didn't save you by mistake. All of the things that he did, the life he lived on our behalf, the death he died on our behalf, when he rose again, and then he promises that we too one day will rise. None of that was a mistake. None of that was an accident. In fact, Hebrews 12 tells us that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, despising its shame, and then rose and ascended to the right hand of God the Father. You are not a mistake. You are here on purpose. And God has a very good purpose for your life. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are and what you have done. Lord, we thank you that you are the truth. We thank you for everything that you've done in us, and we thank you that there is not a single person here not a single person in this room who is a mistake. Lord, you made them. You formed them on purpose. Why? So that you could show your great love to them. So that you could redeem them. So we could bring you glory and honor and praise you for how good and how kind you are. Father, we thank you and we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand as we sing together?